Let's think about why prayer makes sense. Prayer makes sense for the Christian life because God reigns over all things in heaven and earth. Prayer makes sense because we cannot control all things around us. We can become the victims of evil acts. We can become the recipients of evil words. If God is all-powerful and perfectly righteous, then the believer has every good reason and hope to pray. And the wicked have every reason to fear and tremble. You never become so important or old or mature or established that you no longer need to pray. In Psalm 7, we're reminded that Israel's king is the one praying. This is King David. He rules over the land of Israel. He has an army at his command. And yet for David, prayer makes sense. Because God is a higher king than he. David doesn't look at his situation and he thinks, Well, why would I, the great king of Israel, call upon the Lord for help? Look at what all I have at my disposal. Here is David, a praying king, calling upon the Lord for help. Perhaps that word help is the most frequently prayed prayer of all time. Lord, help. And at the core, that's what these last several psalms have been about. In one way or another, I think you can look in Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, and now Psalm 7 today. And a theme that's undergirding these psalms is the instinct of the psalmist, help God, help. You may feel in a situation where you can't say many words, but help can be one of them. And the reason for this instinct that's right in the psalmist's heart is in light of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This view of God as creator over all things and the help of his people. This is what stirs and establishes the reasonableness of the psalmist's prayer. That if God is all powerful and perfectly righteous, then I can call upon him with total trust. Total trust unreserved trust in God. In Psalm 7, David is facing a situation somewhat different from Psalm 6. In Psalm 6, he prayed, don't rebuke me, God, or discipline me in your wrath. Maybe indicating that whatever David was facing, he wasn't altogether innocent in how it came about. Maybe he's facing consequences for sin, perhaps, and some repentant heart that inspires David's song. In Psalm 6, he prayed for deliverance instead of discipline. But in Psalm 7, in Psalm 7, David is going to insist on his integrity. David is going to insist that he is innocent of the false accusations being made. His prayer insists of his own integrity in the face of his enemies. And he prays for God to vindicate him and overcome his enemies. We know that the Psalms are true to life in this way. People can face accusations against them that are not true. David experiences this. And in Psalm 7, he writes about it. There is a little more info above verse 1, besides just a claim of authorship, where we see it's a Psalm of David, perhaps. We see more information, don't we? Above verse 1, a Shagion of David. 
Well, that's not clear. (laughs) This word likely means some kind of lament. But who knows what else it may imply or mean uh, more clearly. We wish we could be more precise as interpreters. But we do know it's something he sings to the Lord. This prayer is a psalm of David, therefore, and it's concerning the words of Cush. Think about that phrase with me for a moment, because here we have a historical line, a historical setting. Earlier in Psalm 3, there was a historical setting. It was after David's son Absalom was rebelling against him. That was the historical setting in Psalm 3. And we've only gotten authorship statements after Psalm 3. Here's a new historical setting. If it's new, I simply mean in light of the string of Psalms. In Psalm 7, we do see a reference to this Benjaminite named Cush that does connect us to the life of David in a way. Now in Psalm 7, we are seeing this word, these words of Cush that are what David is responding to in Psalm 7. So to be clear, Psalm 7 are not the words of Cush. Psalm 7 is what David writes concerning what Cush has said. Who is this guy? Well, there's not a man in 2 Samuel named Cush. But there are Benjaminites who ally ally with Absalom against David. And what's interesting in Psalm 3 is that the last historical setting we learn, Absalom's rebellion prompted the psalm. And here, a Benjaminite telling us that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, in other words. This guy, Cush, is in opposition to David. A Benjaminite would uh, naturally remind the reader, too, of Saul, David's predecessor. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Is this someone who is a loyalist to the preceding political regime? Someone who is an ally not of David, but of Saul, and therefore if Absalom is rebelling against his father, Cush would gladly join that and use whatever words necessary to defame and dishonor Israel's king? David is being hunted and accused. In verses 1 and 2, he cries out for deliverance. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. God is David's fortress, my refuge. Here he calls for deliverance from the one who is the deliverer. Who else could provide it but one who is the deliverer? David feels his very life is at stake. Notice how grave the situation is. He prays for deliverance lest he be ripped asunder. That's a very violent picture. He compares his enemies to a lion. Well, that's not a small problem then if you happen to run into one of those. And here David pictures this lion that his enemies can be compared to. And he says, like a lion, they're ready to tear me apart from soul and not just body. Rending me in pieces with none to deliver. He says, in you, I take refuge. I want to think about that first verse for a moment before we move on beyond the imagery of his dire straits. When he says, in you do I take refuge, how is David taking refuge? He's saying that he is. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. I want to suggest to you that what he has in mind is nothing less than the crucial practice of prayer in orienting his heart to God. Think of it this way. When he says, O Lord my God, in you I'm taking refuge... 
how is it that he's taking refuge? Consider that he's talking about this in prayer. That praying to God is taking refuge in God. Oh, how the enemy, therefore, hates when we pray. In you I take refuge, O God. David demonstrates this because he has turned hardened body to God most high. God is his refuge because David is coming to God in prayer. The enemy would give and do anything that we might stay away from prayer. The enemy would love to keep us discouraged and distracted. To be doubtful or self-absorbed. To keep us convinced that everything will probably be fine. Or, in the other end of the spectrum, God can't even be bothered with this. What good would praying do anyhow? Some kind of statement in our minds where we would justify not turning to God. But for David to say, in God, in you, O God, I take refuge. David is not just saying that he does to other people, I take refuge in God. His prayerfulness is his taking refuge. And I want you to notice that in verses 1 and 2, the example that he sets, we also ought to be those who think, let God be my refuge. So therefore, let us be people of great prayer. Let us be people of fervent prayer who turn to God. Because if we are not those turning to God, how could we say with a straight face, God is our refuge? Prayer shows us that we are not just saying God is our refuge, we are turning to Him. Oh, how the enemy hates when we pray. So therefore, we pray that we might honor God and spite the devil. In verses 1 and 2, this is his cry for deliverance. He's so confident that these are false accusations that he says the words of verses 3 through 5. Now, friends, These are not to be taken lightly. This is quite a bold statement. Verses 3 to 5, he says, Oh, Lord, my God, if I've done this. Now, what's the this? And I think that would have in mind whatever the words of Cush are. That this Benjaminite and whoever else has been persuaded by Cush, it's, it's something David is being accused of. And he says, God, if I've done that, if I've, if I've wrong in my hands... In verse 4, if I have repaid my friend with evil, maybe that's even more precisely there the accusation. That David has acted in betrayal. That there was some ally or friend, but David took that friendship and exploited it and gave evil where there ought to have been faithfulness. Or in verse 4, plundered my enemy without cause. David is in verses 3 and 4 saying, Lord, if this is what's being accused of me, if I've done these things, That in verse 5, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Uh, you read that right. That's a strong statement. He is so confident that he is innocent of those false accusations. He says to God, Lord, let my enemies prevail if they are right. Let him, my enemy, trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. His glory there would be not just his physical life, but his, his royal authority and position. The glory he has as Israel's king. He says, Lord, may all of that absolutely crumble. Not only is he confident of his 
the accusations being false. In verses 6 through 11, he knows that the great judge of all the earth sees rightly and will judge perfectly. In verses 6 through 11, there's a call for God to judge. Now, you hear this from time to time in our culture. One of the most misused statements that people may know about the Bible is from Matthew 7. Judge not, Jesus says. Jesus says, don't judge. And of course, the application of that statement that's so often used very broadly and without context is the idea that you should not point to something about my life and tell me that I ought to turn from it or that something is wicked or that I ought to honor the Lord instead of doing this. You just shouldn't judge because Jesus said not to. That's a misapplication of Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. And sometimes people take the refuge no pun intended, but maybe, uh, in the idea, well, listen, only God can judge me. But do they realize what they're saying there? That this is the perfect judge, the one who is altogether righteous, sovereign over all heaven and earth. And they think it is a good thing for them in their rebellion against God that only God can judge them. They've not thought this through. They've not thought through what it means that God is the holy and righteous, exalted judge of all the earth. David has thought it through. And David says in verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Arise and awake are images from a human perspective where David is looking for God to act on his behalf. We can't over-literalize that. God is not laying down somewhere and has to arise, nor is he asleep and has to awake. We learn later from the Psalms that Israel's keeper neither slumbers nor sleeps. So this is imagery that actually is rooted in an earlier part of Numbers. In Numbers 10, the Israelites are going to set out from Mount Sinai. And they're going to head to the promised land with the glorious tabernacle of God and the Ark of the Covenant that's made of gold. And the Ark of the Covenant would set out where God's presence was symbolized with his people. And even into battle, the Ark of the Covenant was to set out with the Israelites to symbolize the victory of God. Here's what Numbers 10 says. Numbers 10, verse 35. When the Ark was to set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord. There's the language. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from you. And then when the Ark rested... Moses would say, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. We're reading in in chapter 7, verse 6 of Psalms here, language that David is invoking from that earlier part of the Bible. Language that for God to act on behalf of his people will involve the defeat of Israel's enemies. David is surrounded. He's got enemies pursuing him. He's got false accusations levied against him. And David calls for God to act on his behalf. Arise, O O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. You see, the thing that David needs against the unrighteous anger of his enemies is the stronger and righteous anger of God. He needs the prevailing righteous anger pure wrath of God over his enemies. David says, awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. David knows that God has a global jurisdiction. That wherever God is, the nations are accountable to all that God has made known. 
That God is judge of all the earth. God has appointed a judgment. David believes this. And he's calling for it ahead of time. And I I don't think David is ready for an end to all things to be brought to pass. I think David is calling for a judgment by picturing the general judgment. And then drawing a micro or a small example or instance from it. For himself. So it works this way. You've appointed a judgment. And then in verse 7. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. In verses 7 and 8, what we're noticing is God is saying, let all these peoples be assembled then before you, O God, for judgment. Return on high over it all. Here's the group, the scene of judgment. Oh God, you're the judge of all the earth. In verse 8, you judge the peoples. So judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. I think then that David is picturing a general and an international scene and saying, take that big notion, Lord, that you are the judge of all peoples and focus your judging eye upon my heart. And according to my righteousness and integrity that's in me, render judgment ahead of time. Now, this language will sometimes bother the readers of Psalms. Because you see David here, and David won't be the only psalmist who does this, who starts to insist on his own integrity and standing before God. And I understand why this would bother readers, because we recognize in ourselves we are corrupt. We are fractured inwardly. We have been depraved in all the faculties of our being. We are in desperate need of the grace of God to awaken our spiritual sensitivities from death to life. So when David talks about his righteousness and he talks about his integrity, you wonder if he skipped a particular class that talked about the doctrine of sin that day. Where was David when they explained the human condition? Because here's David insisting on his integrity and his righteousness. He's being very specific, though, in the context. David believes, with whatever accusations have been levied against him, he has integrity, not guilt. And with whatever they've accused him of unrighteousness, David is actually righteous in that regard. He has done, in other words, what is right. This is not some absolute statement David is making about his soul. He is saying with regard to the words of Cush and whoever else is on board with that, that they are accusing me, Lord, you, judge of all the earth, pronounce the judgment ahead of time. Evaluate my heart and you will see my integrity and my righteousness with regard to what they have said I have done. David is saying, if I were brought to trial on this, I would be acquitted of all charges. So this is his bold prayer. And in verse 9, He then says to the Lord, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And there's not a believer on planet earth who doesn't echo David's line here. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. We long for that day. David knows he can have confidence in God and hope in God. And he knows God will gather and assemble all the peoples before him. He knows that the defeat of evil will happen by the hand of God. And God is calling for the evil of the wicked to end. When Charles Spurgeon was reflecting on this passage in the 1800s, he thought to himself, how might the evil of the wicked come to an end? And he suggests several ways the Lord can accomplish this. 
God can bring an end to the wicked's evil by changing their hearts. So that all of a sudden, those who are performing what was wicked and evil are doing what is honoring to God because they have repented and turned to God. And God is no longer the one they're rebelling against. God is their refuge. Spurgeon says, yes, he could bring evil to an end by changing their hearts or by restraining their wills that they would long to do more evil than even they than they do commit. He could, in the third instance, deprive them of power, Spurgeon says. That whatever positions and tools, resources and authority they have to commit such evil, God can undermine that. Or God, Spurgeon said, could remove them entirely, physically, from life. We see, I think, examples all over the Old and New Testaments where God deals with the wicked in different ways. But David knows what the Old and New Testaments also will teach us as readers these many centuries later. That God will bring an end to the wicked's designs. The evil of the wicked will come to an end. And he says, may you establish the righteous. Different tracks then, right, for the evil and the wicked. The evil will be brought to the judgment of God and condemned. And yet the righteous will be established. Their their ground will be firmed up. Their position will be reinforced because theirs is a path of life and blessing. And God will not change that. In other words, let God do what would be down the path for the wicked. And let God perform for the righteous what would be down the path for them. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. May you establish the righteous. David prays this because he knows God will never mess this up. God won't look back after the day of judgment and think, I I realize after a few occasions to think about some of these situations, I got some of this wrong. God perfectly knows the minds and hearts, and he is the righteous God. In verse 9, he's the one who tests minds and hearts. We can't read minds and hearts. God knows our hearts. The language is about the internal organs. As one translator put it, Yahweh knows our kidneys. Which is the way of talking about the deep recesses of the ancient Near Eastern reader. To talk about those organs was a way of talking about what deeply works within us. In other words, the depths of our being. Who can know it? God can and does. God searches what man cannot search. He tests and refines what man cannot test and refine. Like purifying gold and other materials. God can test David's heart. David says, God, do it. Do it ahead of the judgment. Test my integrity and righteousness. You know, O God, I am not guilty in this regard. In verse 10, he says, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. David believes he is upright in heart. Now, is that because David would say, that's all that would be true of me, that I would not have sin? David writes Psalm 51. And even in the narratives of David's life in 1 and 2 Samuel, we recognize David is not perfectly upright. But David's heart before God is upright because David has trusted in God, not because David is sinless. David is not sinless. He's turned to the God who is merciful. He's turned to God who is his refuge. And therefore, his standing with God is what it is, not because David is without sin, but because God is abundant in mercy. And David says, my shield, my protection, where do I go for that? He says, I go to God. 
My shield is with God. And a shield is a military image. David would have plenty of soldiers who have shields. They do not provide the ultimate refuge for the king. But rather the king who is greater than David is the refuge for David. His shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. It's another way of what Paul would say in Romans 8. That God is for us. He saves the upright in heart. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We're reminded of Psalm 3, verse 3. O Lord, you are a shield about me. In chapter 5, verse 12, you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. In verse 11, God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. And I want you to know, friends, it is really good news that verse 11 is true. God is a righteous judge. Faithful interpreters of Scripture insist on the absolute, total righteousness of God. That His ways are upright because His character is upright. God Himself has no darkness, no shade of wickedness within Him. He is just and perfectly just. He is true in all that He says, makes known, and performs. His acts are righteous because He always performs according to His character. And if God is righteous, then he can be trusted. And if he is a righteous judge, then we can trust all of his judgments. The phrase at the end of verse 11 is a God. He is a God who feels indignation every day. Translating it a little bit differently, as some interpreters have, could offer a more clear sense of the verse. That God expresses his indignation or expresses his wrath every day. I think this is what Paul has in mind in Romans 1.18. That God has manifested his wrath now from heaven against godlessness and wickedness upon the earth. The wicked have not been brought to full accounting as will happen at a day of judgment. But do not think God is passive toward the wicked in this world. Far from it. They should tremble before God who even now is a righteous judge. And who day by day knows the wickedness upon this earth and acts. Spurgeon says God not only detests sin, but is angry with those who continue to indulge in it. We long for injustice to be made right, for righteousness to flood the earth, for evil to be subdued and overcome. It is good news for the believer to affirm with the saints of the ages, God is a righteous judge. He has all power and he is perfectly righteous. So on the day of judgment, believers know that our hope in him will not be in vain. And the wicked who ought to have trembled and ought to have turned from their sin and ought to have found refuge in God will face a just condemnation. In verses 12 to 16, the repentance theme is invoked. Look in verses 12 to 16. Danger for the unrepentant. Danger for the unrepentant. It's an if statement. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, well, we have to wonder then. That's a good thing to consider. That's the hypothetical to wonder. If people do repent, we know God gives mercy, there is forgiveness, there's life and refuge. But what should a man ponder if a man doesn't repent? What is it that he should know? What is it that he should know? That rather than turning to God, hoping in God, turning from sin, loving the Lord with his heart, if he does not repent, then what is on the other half of that if statement? If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword 
He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This is military imagery. God is pictured here as a divine warrior. David doesn't have a warrior in his army that is like the divine warrior who will trample the wicked. Wetting his sword and bending his bow, these are are actions that are ready for battle. In other words, the wicked, if they had the right sense about them, would look at what they are doing and realize how foolish it is to live in opposition to God. What mercy God gives to those who turn to him for refuge. The sword and the bow have been thought by some to represent those enemies who might be nearer to the king and those who are far away. Well, God has a sword for those who are near and a bow with arrows that will reach those who are far. No matter what enemies have surrounded David, God is inescapable. His might, his sovereignty, his perfect justice. It is a hope and a consolation, a balm for his people. Because we know of the wicked and the enemies of Christ in this world. We're told in verse 14, behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. He gives birth to lies. The end of verse 14 probably further confirms what David is dealing with. Falsehoods. Accusations. We know that the wicked can plan things inwardly that manifest in things other than false accusations. All sorts of wicked acts. It's just that David mentions in verse 14 what he's dealing with. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, pregnant with mischief, gives birth to lies. There's a, a logic to all of that order of images, isn't it? Conception, pregnancy, birth. There it is in verse 14, just in the order you'd expect. The wicked conceives evil, so something within him, that then develops and materializes in sort of strategy or plan, some kind of mischief, but it never remains only inward. The wicked conceives and is pregnant with mischief and then gives birth to sinful acts. Inner wickedness and then outward manifestation of it. In David's case, false words have caused him great grief. In verses 5 and 6, uh, verses 15 and 16, I saw a 5 and a 6 there, but I need to give you the ones that are in front of that. <laughs> the 15 and the 16, he gives you the self-destructive path of the wicked. The wicked is the subject of the verbs here in verse 15. He, the wicked, makes a pit, digging it out and falls into the hole. Now, why would somebody dig into a pit and fall into the hole? Well, they would, they would do the former, but not mean to do the latter, okay? You would dig a pit if you were a hunter. David is being pursued by wicked people, and he puts forth here an image of pursuers who would dig a hole so that somebody coming by who's unsuspecting, a person or an animal, would fall within it. But notice what happens. It's the irony. The wicked here makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he's made. It reminds us of Mordecai and Haman in the book of Esther, where Mordecai was in the sights of wicked Haman. And Haman raised up gallows for Mordecai's death. But by the end of the story, Mordecai is vindicated. And Haman is hanged on those gallows he had built for another. The Bible is filled with narratives and proverbs that tell us of the ironic turn of events. Like in Proverbs, we see in Proverbs 26, 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And a stone will come back onto him who starts it rolling. You see, the wicked think they're so clever, but sin is a stupid life strategy. It makes no sense. 
Living in rebellion against God is absolute foolishness, and the path of rebellion is a path of self-destruction. Look what happens here to the wicked. They're not thinking, oh, I I am looking toward a future where I am anticipating self-destruction and and a a foolish end to all of my uh, sowing, a reaping that would be even worse. The wicked are not necessarily intending that. But the Bible sees farther down the road than we do. And it says to us that the wicked digs a pit and falls into the hole that they've made. Sin is a terrible life strategy. And this person is performing wickedness and does not know that by sowing wickedness, he will reap judgment. It tells us in verse 16, his mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. To descend upon the skull, I don't think that means like some small acorn that falls from a tree. You're walking under it and you think, what was that? We're talking about something cataclysmic. We're talking about the kind of thing that you walk under and what you had supplied for another comes back upon your skull and descends with such force that you're done. The wicked need to know that God can cause them to fall by their own counsels. In chapter 5 verse 10, David says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Make them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. Sin is harmful to the sinner. Not just to those sinned against. The Bible also speaks much to that category as well. Loving our neighbor and not doing injustice to our neighbor. Yes, sin affects others. Sin harms the sinner. Just look at verses 15 and 16 here. And his mischief returns on his own head. And on his own skull, violence descends. What should a reader think then if they realize, I'm less like David here, okay? Less like David with regard to these charges where he has integrity and he has righteousness. Maybe we realize, okay, I'm, I'm not somebody finding refuge in God. I don't call upon the Lord. I don't seek to delight in His Word. I'm not fleeing to Him as a refuge. Well, verse 12 opened by saying, if a man doesn't repent. But we must ask, what if he does? What if he does repent? What if he turns from his sin? Then God does not wet his sword and ready his bow. God has no weapons of destruction for the penitent sinner who comes to him. God becomes the everlasting life and refuge of all who come to him. And God is not against you. God is for you. So repent and turn and flee to Christ. He's the refuge and friend of sinners. David is confident in verse 17 of how this will turn out for him. He says about the future, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. See, if we were to think on the righteousness of God, the purity of all of his ways, the perfection of all of his will and decrees, we would recognize the astounding supremacy of his righteousness in all that he's done. And it is praiseworthy. It is praiseworthy. David says, I will thank God. The thanks due to his righteousness. He believes if you conceive of the righteousness of God, if you will think on what God is like and his perfections and majesty and supremacy and glory, then David believes you would join God in thanksgiving. You would see a worthiness, a worthiness that God possesses. That we would give thanks to God for being God. For his righteousness in all things. 
David says, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And David's praise to God comes from a conviction that arises not because of his circumstances that are in line as he would like. We're not told by the end of the psalm that everything is resolved. You know what David's conviction is? No matter what Cush says, no matter what all the words of his enemies are, David knows that God is a perfect judge. And he knows that God sees his own heart and mind and that God is totally righteous. So David says, I'm going to thank you and I'm going to praise you and I'm going to hope in you because you're my refuge. Christ will assemble all the peoples. What David says here in verse 7. He says, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered around you. Friends, it will happen. Christ will return in the glory of his angels. And we are told in Matthew 25, he will gather the nations. It will happen. And he is the perfect and righteous judge. How is it? That those who know God will not be condemned on that day. How is it that David can say, God, you deliver the upright in heart. How, how can I get an upright heart? That's what you got to ask as a reader and a sinner before God. If God is altogether righteous, God, how is it that I can get a heart that is upright before you? God is a righteous judge. How can he ever forgive sin? In other words, we can put the question in the way the New Testament does. With language of justification. Christians are those who have been justified by God. But on what basis? We say in Christ Jesus we have an upright heart. On what basis? Because we are guilty of sin. Our justification therefore is not based on our innocence. Our justification is not based on our good deeds. Justification is not your accomplishment. It is God's gracious work, an act of righteousness, where glory and thanks are due His name. The cross of Jesus reveals the righteousness of God. Paul says in Romans 3, God makes known His righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness that takes sin seriously. Because on the cross, the Lord Jesus bore all our sin. And God's righteousness becomes a saving righteousness. And it counts a right standing to all sinners who come to Him. We are declared not condemned in Christ. So therefore we must come to Christ. Christ is our refuge. There is no condemnation in Christ So therefore, the most urgent matter on all of our hearts is that we be found in Christ. Because where that is, there is no condemnation. And I'm not just implying that. Romans 8, 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So therefore, if there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, then that's where I want to be. The righteousness of Christ becomes the refuge for sinners. Because on the cross, Jesus bears our sin as a faithful substitute. How is David upright in heart? Because he is clothed in a righteousness that's not his own. Martin Luther wrote a letter to his friend in the the 1500s. And Luther asked his friend, 
Have you finally become sick and tired of your own righteousness and taken a deep breath of the righteousness of Christ and learned to trust it? And Luther was very animated by the idea of the gospel of Christ's righteousness. It changed Luther's life. Luther realized there were no acts of penance and no prayers and no particular deeds and this or that that someone could do to earn their favor with God. Luther learned the staggering truth of the gospel that it is only the righteousness of Christ that will totally cover the sinner as refuge. Luther's letter then, that question is relevant to all of us today. My dear friend this morning, on February 26, 2023, Have you finally become sick and tired of your own righteousness and taken a deep breath of the righteousness of Christ and learned to trust it? Because in Him, there is no condemnation. Let's pray.